Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and in the second part of our two-part podcast for November, my guest is writer and broadcaster Matthew Sweet. Having previously written books overturning our cherished myths about the Victorians and the bizarre world of the early days of British cinema, Matthew now turns his attention to London's grand hotels during the Second World War. West End Front reveals a world within a world, populated by an amazing cast of characters aristocrats, foreigners in exile, conmen, abortionists, spies, politicians, communists, journalists, top military men, and secret service agents not forgetting a thriving gay subculture in the bar beneath the Ritz. Matthew weaves a sequence of stories that introduce us to some of the colourful denizens of these intersecting worlds, from Italian waiters to aristocratic conmen, and jazz band leaders to washed-up European monarchs. I had read that an article he wrote about the exiled king of Albania was at the origin of this book, but I began by asking Matthew when he realised that the hotels themselves were what would give his stories their shape. Well, during the course of writing that article, really, because I went to Albania in 1997 to spend time with um, King Leka of the Albanians, who was trying to reclaim the throne of Albania that his father had uh, had been uh, deprived of at the beginning of the war. And his father, King Zog, had moved into the Ritz and uh, moved there with his huge entourage. He'd, he'd stayed in a whole floor of the Ritz and paid his bills, it was said, in gold bullion um, that he brought in in his hat boxes and in his, in his luggage that was supposed to be the uh, gold that really should have been in the National Bank of Albania. And for the same piece, I talked to Crown Prince Alexander of Yugoslavia, who was born in Claridge's in Suite 212, which was declared Yugoslav territory for a night so as not to interfere with the the Karajorjevich succession but talking to both of these men it became very clear to me that that you know they weren't the only ones who were here that these hotels were were receptacles for the five-star refugees of Europe and the reason why they were there was very clear the people who were there felt they were safe they knew about this concrete. They knew about the, the, the web of metal that was underneath the skin of these buildings. And these buildings had always attracted people of influence, people of power. And they just seemed even more attractive in the context of the war. So they became centres for all kinds of things. Because so many foreigners were arriving there, they became, they became the source of great anxiety to, to the secret policemen, to a special branch and to MI5 because they feared that this is where secrets were being exchanged, where all the careless talk was going on. And although there isn't any evidence that somebody who we can definitely say was a Nazi spy turned up in any of these places, we do know that one intercepted on the way from Scotland was heading for the coffee lounge of the Dorchester where she was going to hand over a radio transmitter to her contact. So the contact was probably there. So from that we can infer that there were people probably who were up to no good. And there was certainly the suspicion that those people were there made these places a sort of extraordinary interest to the, to the people whose job it was to stop those people achieving their ends. Hotels make a fantastic backdrop for this kind of story, don't they? Because they're, they're all about facade and the glitter and the glamour. And then, you know, behind, behind the facade, there are all the people scurrying away. And then in front of the facade, you've got all these people who are engaged in self-reinvention and deception and sort of making themselves characters in a, in a play, as it were. So it is, it's, a, it's a wonderful platform on which to tell these stories. Well, it's been done before, hasn't it? I mean, the hotel is a, I mean, it's a classic arena, isn't it? I mean, the novel 
Grand Hotel and the you know the, it's been a stage play it's been a um, it, it's been a film and the idea of using a hotel as a as a precinct as they say in, in TV drama as a place in which characters can gather in which stories can work themselves out um, you know it's a pretty old idea but it's there in real life this is how it worked and you have in these buildings got this extraordinary diversity of people who would not come together under any other circumstances and some of them are guests and some of them are working there and they're all within this space watching each other observing each other interacting with each other and you're interestingly rather sort of swimming against the current which as you say in the book has rather tended to kind of emphasise the commonality of experience in the war, everybody pulling together. This sort of atomises it and shows that different people had very different agendas. Well, it's a very reassuring idea, isn't it? We all pull together during the war. It somehow was a social leveller. It um, dissolved the differences between people. And while that's true to, to, to some extent, it's really not the whole picture. And there were some antagonisms that seemed to have been amplified by war. And not everybody kept calm and carried on. And the hotels became a symbol, really, of the divisions that persisted into wartime. They were perceived as being centres of inequality, places where the rationing laws were mysteriously suspended. So, I mean, certain papers, for instance, were very interested in exposing the fact that... Um, you know, if you went to the Savoy, um, uh, one reporter claimed that um, it was very easy to get a um, packet of cigarettes. You just asked the waiter. And uh, it was widely perceived that... Um, you know, these places were not sticking to the rules as far as rationing was concerned. So they became symbols of the inequality of suffering. Did you at all have to steel yourself against being seduced by the glamour and actually remember that there was a very divided kind of society and there was, on one hand there were very rich people, on the other hand there were people who were eating the leftovers off plates? All the time. These places are seductive that's what they're about you go there the whole idea of them is that you forget the world outside if you go to uh, the ritz you can gaze out across green park but you can't see piccadilly if you go to the savoy you don't see the strand but you can look out over the thames if you go to the dorchester you can look out from your room over hyde park but you don't see Park Lane itself. So, yes, and the history of writing about these uh, places. There are quite a few books about the history of... There's a, there's a fairly good one about the Ritz. There are several about the Savoy. There are lots of books about uh, London hotels. Most of them are by writers who, who are more or less employees of those buildings. They're, they're authorised histories. They're official histories. And so you only ever see it from the management's point of view. There's much, much more to the stories of these places than what they really want you to know about them. You know, they, they want to celebrate parts of their history, but as institutions, they're very amnesiac because you're allowed to remember um, and celebrate a few select uh, celebrity guests. But think of the tragedies that have occurred in these buildings. Think about what people go to hotels to do. You know, they go to do the things on the whole that they don't want to do at home the dramas that have been played out in those places. If we knew when we went to these places, if the walls could talk, we probably wouldn't sleep very easily. I mean, just like, the, for instance, you know, the number of suicides that have taken place historically within these buildings. And the hotels have to, you know, completely understandably, have to seal all that up. 
that can never really be part of the hotel's official history because it would make everybody deeply, deeply uneasy. And the absence of unease is what these places are all about. It's the sort of uh, pattern of virgin territory, isn't it? You're not sleeping in a bed where someone else just exactly. slept last night. When you go in a hotel, you don't even... I mean, the, the, this is why they're so... The best are so, um, you know, so scrupulously clean and, and so well maintained. If you go into a hotel room and sense the previous occupant then the place has failed in some quite important regard. They are kind of ahistorical spaces in many ways, hotel rooms. But you wanted to make those all speak, didn't you? You wanted to bring some of the ghosts back into focus. And I wondered how you did that. I know you, you say in the book you were actually sitting with your laptop in some hotel lounges, but how did, how did you actually get that sort of feeling of, of the 1940s uh, in, in those establishments? Well, I mean, I did go and write, as you say, in, in some of those places and just uh, occupy a quiet uh, table somewhere where I wouldn't have to, you know, I wouldn't have to, wouldn't be bothered too much. I wouldn't have to, wouldn't have to kind of uh, keep uh, refilling my uh, coffee pot too much in order to, to sit in the atmosphere of those places. And sometimes, you know, the, the one I spent the longest in, I think, was, I mean, a relatively obscure hotel, the Mount Royal on Oxford Street, where really the most... Um, uh, the most mournful and tragic story that's in the book uh, took place at the death of a woman called Mary Pickwode, who died there as the result of a of a botched abortion. And I spent... It, it was a long job writing about it because it was a very complicated story. It was a story that represented a lot of other stories that I couldn't tell because this was a frighteningly common experience during the war. And I wanted to get it right and serve as best as I could all of the people involved. And I talked to the, the families and of, of all the people who were involved in the case. But to write it up, I did, I sat in the this kind of light-free central lobby of the Mount Royal. And it really did begin to, I somehow did feel that the atmosphere of the place was working its way into the writing. It was very easy to imagine that if I, if I just looked up, I might see this woman you know, walking over towards the lift or passing me on the stairs or something. They do have a kind of intensity. The specific stories are hidden, but once you know that they exist, it's very, very hard to banish them from your mind. I'm sure if I ever... I've never stayed at the Mount Royal Hotel, but I'm sure if I did, I wouldn't sleep very well there. I mean, should we be surprised that these establishments stayed open throughout the war? I mean, they're, they're devoted to extravagance and luxury and indulgence. I mean... That, that struck me as, as uh, rather odd that they, that they simply stayed open all the way through. I think one of the reasons why they stayed open was because there was a sense in which these were arenas in which Britain's privileged classes could perform their patriotism. So that the act of going out for cocktails at the Ritz in the war years could quite reasonably be perceived as not an act of, of pleasure-seeking or indulgence, but as a way of showing Hitler that he wasn't going to disrupt these routines, that somehow the routines of, of, um, of British life were intact because the Ritz bar was still open and wasn't boarded up, uh, because the roofs were still on these places, and because there were people eating dinners, dinners that were sort of depleted and substandard, but still maintained the same kind of, um, of atmosphere and the same sort of rules. And that showed that something about British life remained unfractured by the experience of war. But also because the hotels, I mean, these days, 
they're very international places in the sense that um, you know I suspect that many the majority of their of their visitors are are foreign tourists and they're not quite as plugged in I don't think to the to the social lives of of, of um of well-off Londoners as they once were. They're not as fashionable as they once were. I mean, they're still beautiful places, but I think that um, the, the London's um, rich, uh, smart, trendy people don't really go to um, the Charing Cross Hotel anymore, as they might have done in 1940. And the Ritz uh, bar um, that, that was very fashionable in those days has, has disappeared and is now owned by another company. And it's a casino where really, you know, if you go there, it's just Russian oligarchs. So those places have, have closed down. So they're not quite part of the, of the, the, the natural rhythm of upper class life of privileged life as they once were. When Churchill left Number 10 Downing Street when he was voted out, he went to Claridge's and that seemed like the most natural thing in the world for him to do. Yeah, absolutely. When he, was, uh, uh, when he lost the election in 1945, Lady Churchill was contacted by um, the manager of the, the Savoy Group, um, George Reeve Smith, that then owned Claridge's as well. And he took her around, well, he planned to take her show a whole series of rooms and rather thought that Churchill would like to to live for a bit while they sorted themselves out in the Savoy so that he could uh, look out over the river and uh, you know maybe do a bit of painting recreational painting but they didn't get that far the first one they looked at was a penthouse at Claridge's and um Churchill just said yeah this you know this will do words to that effect and that's where he spent those uh, those few months. But yes, it's not a place where it's not a bolt hole of de- of uh, deposed British prime ministers, is it? These days, you know, when um, um, uh, when Gordon Brown lost the election, the idea that he would he would kind of shrug and uh, get a taxi uh, to the Savoy is inconceivable now, really, isn't it? Now, I mean, one impediment to keeping them open at the beginning, it seemed to me, was the loss of a lot of their labour force because a lot of the the workers there were Italian. And Italy being an Axis power, they were well. Collar the lot was was what Churchill yeah. said, wasn't it? So there was a, there was a, a, a big extraction of um, of the, the waiting staff. Yes, there was this moment in the summer of 1940 where, under Regulation 18B, the Italian waiters, all waiters who uh, who were judged to be enemy aliens, um, were marched from these places and out into uh, internment camps across the country. And so this meant that really a lot of people who weren't quite good enough to be there but who were who were British moved in and filled those jobs so that you got um no I mean not just British actually but from uh, from allied nations from um nations that weren't uh, um that weren't um, on the Axis side allied to the Axis side and it meant that uh standards slipped I mean Clement Freud who worked as a as a chef at the Dorchester during the war he remembered seeing this awful old um, French uh, chef de legume who would never have been employed during peacetime. A hideous old bloke with a load of missing teeth who had this grotesque way of um, garnishing potato dishes with parsley. He chopped up the parsley, stuck it in his mouth and spat them all over the plate. Now, I'm pretty sure that that was a practice that wouldn't have been entertained uh, during peacetime. So there was a sort of slackness about it. The most uh, dispiriting thing about that uh, story is that when 
those waiters, Italian waiters, were released from internment when the state very sensibly decided that barely any of them were a threat to British security, that most of them were pretty patriotic, pretty much on the Allied side. That's partly why they were in England, uh, uh, many of them. That the staff members who had moved in to those places at the hotels didn't want them back. And there were campaigns conducted, I mean, there was one at the Savoy, conducted to stop the... Um, the Italian manager of the restaurant returning uh, to his job when you know he was a man without a, a grain of sympathy for, for Mussolini. So that sort of awkwardness must have been intolerable to, to some of the returnees. I, I know that really some of them never really recovered from, from the humiliation of that moment. Yeah, there is, there is a vein of xenophobia that sort of bubbles along all the way through and also a very unpleasant vein of anti-Semitism, which a, a proportion of the clientele certainly exhibited. You know what, this was, the, this was one of the big surprises of writing this book. You know, I, it, it wasn't a mystery to me that in the 30s and the 40s, anti-Semitism was pretty much a background buzz in British society. You know, I mean, the reputation of T.S. Eliot is one that, uh, that uh, you know, th- that question can be argued through uh, and around appropriate conversation to be having in the Faber offices. Yeah, uh, but I was quite taken aback by some of the evidence that my interviewees uh, had to present about this. I spoke to the the widow of the band leader at the Dorchester, Joy Stone. Lou Stone kept the band going through the Blitz in the Dorchester ballroom, was a man of deep principle. I mean, actually a a pacifist uh, by uh, by inclination. He was a member of an organisation called the People's Convention that that, that, um, campaigned for an end to the war. But he, you know, he did his bit. He played through the Blitz that he was so, he and his band got so blasé about the bombing. And I think were so keen to reassure the dancers there that they... They managed to work in the rhythms of the bombing to the music, so that when a six-stick incendiary fell nearby, when they heard the first blast, they immediately went into the anvil chorus and let the Luftwaffe supply every alternate note. Now, you need nerves of steel to do that, but uh, Lustone was told by the management of the Dorchester not to put too many Jews in his band, not to play anything that was too Jewish-sounding, and... The extraordinary, um, I think, I mean, the Dorchester is particularly interesting from this point of view because you've got on its management people who are really some of the greatest supporters of the Zionist movement in this moment. You've got the meetings taking place in this hotel between the interested parties. The founders of the State of Israel meet in this hotel to talk about what that state will be like theoretically in the post-war world. This is sort of one of the places where the idea of that state is is, is materialised. And yet you've also got in the very same building some people who were essentially pro-Nazi. Some of the most virulent anti-Semites that, uh, that the British establishment ever produced and they produced quite a lot of them. Stephen Spender, the poet, remembered going to uh, a dinner at, at the Dorchester surrounded by people who he thought well you know if the Germans win the war quite what difference will it make to these people and that was quite shocking to discover I mean I suppose it was always it's always something that was kind of at the back of my mind but I, I did not anticipate that I would in in interviewing the the, um, the interviewees for this book and in, in doing the research um, looking into the the police files and the government files how often an anti-Semitic sentiment 
would rise and how much that seemed to be part of the the warp and weft of British sensibility in this period. Yeah, I mean, it seems quite casual. It seems, it yeah, seems like it's, it's taken casual. for granted, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Tell me about cl- class tensions. You mentioned Clement Freud a moment ago, and you quote him in the book as saying, we hope oh, the bombs yes. would kill the lot of our customers. <laughs> and I wonder, is, is that also something which is kind of simmering under the surface all the time? I think that, I mean, it depended on who you were, I think. But I spoke to... Um, uh, I spoke to a man called Max Levitas, who was part of a group of East End communists who marched into the, the Savoy Hotel in at the beginning of the Blitz to really demand a kind of uh, sanctuary there and to protest about the poor provision of uh, air raid shelters in the East End. This is an argument that had been um, rowing away in the in the pre-war period. And it must have seemed a tragic injustice and it did seem it to, to, to those people that while the East End the East End was an inferno during those uh, those first weeks of the Blitz you know if you'd been wandering around near the docks you would have seen sugar caramelising on the surface of the water spilled from the uh, from the stores on the on the dockside and alcohol exploding inside barrels hot pepper burning and flying through the air it must have been an absolutely in- I mean, it's impossible to imagine, really, how awful, how intensely uh, dangerous that was. And these people have been campaigning for deep shelters in the East End for some years because everybody knew that, that, that this war was um, was coming. It was no, it was obviously no surprise to anybody. And some of those campaigners, one of them, uh, Professor J. B. S. Haldane, said that he had overheard in some club room in London somebody saying a, a establishment figure a, a pro-franco figure of the 30s military man saying that well we can't build these bomb shelters in the east end because if there's a revolution the raf won't be able to bomb them out now i don't know whether that's anything more than hearsay whether he said it you know haldane could even conceivably have made it up as a as a propaganda point but the idea that that we could be so that there are portions of British society so estranged from them from each other in this period, I think really is um, you know it's a stark thing to confront. As well as the residents, there was also the nightlife and people who would come and visit visit the bars and and, and prominent among the the subcultures is, is, is the gay scene. What, what what was it like in the in the forties? Well, this was underneath the Ritz was um, the lower bar. The pink sink, as it became dubbed in these years, it was essentially it was what we would call a gay bar. Um, I guess there was this big overlap between the, the homosexual and the sort of the bohemian and artistic, and also the intelligence uh, part of the culture. Very, very rather dangerous combination, as 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 was soon discovered in the in the late forties and the fifties, when all the when all the scandals and uh, you know Guy Burgess and all of those stories broke. But um, during the war years, I mean, I was really, really lucky to speak to two uh, men who have both since died since, um, since I spoke to them, who knew the world of the, of the lower bar well and knew the figures who rolled up there. There was this woman who they both talked about, an artist model, she was essentially, called Edeby Johnson, known as Sod Johnson, the Buggers Vera Lynn, who was a plausible lady 
who was said to look like a, a plucked turkey. And she wore these uh, pearls around her neck that she was endlessly rattling. What she would do, would she would latch herself onto um, often an American serviceman who she suspected might want to go to a place like the lower bar of the Ritz, and she would bring them there, and then they would have to stand for a drink um, all night. But it was a very loose uh, sort of establishment, and they both talked about it as a kind of pickup joint. I know that, you know, I mean, one of my interviews was picked up by Terence Rattigan there. He told me it was a very unsatisfactory experience, uh, so he said. Um, and there was a high up from the war office who presided there who, was, uh, who had the nickname of Colonel Cutie, and it was a fairly outrageous place, I think. But for some reason, it was tolerated um, during the Second World War, as it had been actually in the First World War. There was a sort of continuity about this, because it was said that during the First World War, it also provided a, provided a, a place for, um, for homosexual men to kind of meet up, sort of exchange news, um, you know, talk about where else they might go of an evening. And it seems to have only had this function at these particular points. But once the war was over, there was a kind of less, there was less official toleration, so it would seem, of this kind of thing, because um, more or less the day after VE Day, some of the regulars went down there to find that the bar was closed for redecoration. It never opened again. And you get a sense of disappointment, don't you? It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a sort of the party's <laughs> over sort of feeling, isn't yes, it? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think for, I think for many, the war years were, uh, were years in which things, there was a kind of relaxation. I mean, for absolutely obvious reasons, people were much less cautious because the the possibility of death was always there. I mean, it's, it's well reported in the period people really did live for the moment, um, I think, because they they thought that that moment could be their last. And you, you have that self-reinvention again. You can put on a uniform, become someone different, you're away from home. You know, you can be what you want to be, really. And you see that with confidence tricksters too, don't you? We're not another group who inhabited uh, some of these hotels. Yes, indeed. Well, I think that they, the hotels had always been profitable hunting grounds for, for con artists. But actually, the war gave them new sorts of commodities because there were a lot of people who wanted quick preferment um, in the army. There was, of course, a huge black market in, in ration coupons. And so they had new things to deal in. And also, yes, I mean, the fact that there was a sort of democratisation that occurred when everybody went into khaki. So I think during this time, it's more possible to reinvent yourself, more possible to lie about yourself, pass yourself off as somebody who you're not, because people see the uniform and kind of take it to, take it um, on its face value. And there are lots of examples of people impersonating officers moving beyond their rank, because this means that you're just allowed to sign the bill, or you might be able to write a cheque that might not necessarily be greeted with, um, with, with any warmth by the bank the following morning. So I think it created a culture where where there was a lot of this sort of subterfuge going on. But, it, you know, it was known because police officers sometimes moved into rooms at this ho at, uh, hotels in order to survey what was going on in their, in their lounges. Certainly at the Charing Cross Hotel, a senior policeman in charge of investigating this kind of activity um, lived there in a room uh, on the top floor, very cheap living on the top floor of the Chain Cross Hotel. Most of these hotels either closed down their top floors or just really reduced the rate. So if you were if you were kind of reckless and brave, you could get a good deal if you were prepared to be rather slightly closer to the bomb than, uh, than your uh, fellow guests. 
did the war change things for these grand hotels or did they really sail on into the, the late 40s much as they had entered the war? They did change things quite dramatically, I think. They resisted those changes, I think. And in a way, many of them tried to be islands of resistance against those changes. But after the war, that proved impossible to maintain. I remember talking to the old um, head barman of the Savoy, Joe Gilmore, who ran the American bar, lives quite close to here, actually, still with us. But he remembered just after the war, a customer in the bar clicking his fingers to attract a waiter's attention and the waiter saying to him, I'm sorry, sir, have you lost your dog? And that for him was, I mean, there are lots of stories from this period about, you know, the moment where deference ended. A lot of people of this generation have that story about when they realised things were changing. But in the post-war period, the hotels, some of them, fought against that, uh, that change. And there was a whole series of strikes just after the war that were essentially disputes between unions and management, trying to get union recognition within the hotel. Um, the laws changed about employment practice around this time too, because a lot of the people in these hotels were, were paying to work there. They didn't get wages. They literally handed over money to work there and then took the tips. And they still had to surrender a percentage of their tips um, to the management. It was called the tronc system. You know, it was something that uh, quickly became illegal after the war. But the hotels tried to compensate themselves, really. And I think in many cases, uh, really, they won that battle because uh, union recognition was very, very uh, patchy. And there was a very, very bitter strike, which essentially the unions lost. And I think that is the reason why still today hotels are not great places to work for many of the people who work there. The hours are inhospitable. The pay is not great. They are uh, jobs that people pass through. They're hard, hard places to work, um, I think. I think one of the reasons for that is because the hotels did retain a certain kind of power over their staff that other, other businesses surrendered. Matthew Sweet. West End Front is available now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you haven't yet come across it, do look out for the first part of this November podcast, which features an interview with Fiona McCarthy, author of The Last Pre-Raphaelite, her acclaimed biography of the Victorian painter Edward Byron Jones. The best way to be sure you never miss another Faber podcast is to sign up to receive them automatically by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.